Hello everyone and welcome back to another Declassified Discussions. In this episode, we have a filmmaker, photographer, outdoor explorer in search of Bigfoot and other cryptids. He's the creator of the YouTube channel Sasquatch Out of the Shadows and Bigfoot Beyond the Trail series, as well as a part of the Small Town Monsters crew. Hushlings, please welcome Alexander Petikoff. Hey guys doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. And we're going to dive right in. First and foremost, let everybody know all about you, what you're up to and what you do uh, in your daily. Sure. I'm, uh, I guess I'm just a guy that runs around the woods and the camera looks for Bigfoot <laughs> to, to sum it up <laughs> now. That's obviously the simplified version. Um, yeah. So as you guys kind of mentioned in the intro, I'm a filmmaker, uh, outdoorsman, really been to, into the... Uh, Hiking and backpacking, did some survival training back in the day, and just uh, always been into getting out of the woods. And I've always had this fascination for mysterious things, mysterious creatures like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, other cryptids. There's a lot of different kind of things that fall under the cryptid umbrella. Uh, and uh, I've always been into film as well. So about 2015 or so, I started producing documentaries on things like the Loch Ness Monster and really just started getting out of the woods. I wanted to do a feature film on the topic of Sasquatch, but I started kind of looking into the subject and interviewing witnesses and people who are researchers. And I realized, wow, there's a lot, there's a lot more here than I would want to fit into a feature film in certain different parts of the country, Northern California, up here in New England, where I'm from. There's just a lot of different things going on. So I said, hey, I'm going to create kind of an open-ended series and just I can always interview people about this stuff and just sort of have it be standalone interviews or do this or that. And at some point during that time period, I started working with a production company called Small Town Monsters, which focuses heavily on uh, kind of folklore, these cryptid stories, a lot of paranormal stories across the U.S., especially smaller communities, hence the name Small Town Monsters. You know, there's a big focus on a lot of these rural towns that have a history of a Maybe they have a strange creature in their area or they have UFO flap or stuff like the Mothman of Point Pleasant, the, the Flatwoods monster. There, there's a lot of different creatures around the, the country. I mean, even stuff like the Bell Witch, which isn't necessarily a cryptid. It's more of a, it's like a classic kind of witch story. And you've got the Jersey Devil, other things like that. So there's been a big focus on that. And I've been doing projects on and off with them for a number of years, including about the Lake Champlain monster. And I've done a lot of um, just work on other films that they put out, including the On the Trail of Bigfoot series. And we kind of devised making a kind of YouTube spinoff of that called Bigfoot Beyond the Trail. And that's what uh, I've been doing now since the past, well, since about early 2021. So just over a little over a year and a half now at this point, which is a, which is basically the idea is, you know, we're, we're going out into these remote areas as remote as, remote as we can in North America, which... I mean, I'll tell you, there is so much remoteness in this, on this continent that's still out there. It's unbelievable. Mm. And that's the thing is people kind of stick to the trails. Usually that's typically what we do, even in national parks or national forests. People don't usually deviate too far off of those, those main roads, the main tourist spots, all that kind of stuff. But long story short, you know, we, we just like to put ourselves out there and we can get more into it specifically, but, uh, yeah, we just try to portray the topic of Sasquatch and Bigfoot as accurately as we possibly can in the sense that when we're out there, we, we never fake stuff. We never want to deceive our audience. We kind of will interview folks that have had encounters or researchers or 
we're out in the woods and we'll, we'll basically explain what we've had happen to us and we let the audience make their own uh, kind of interpretations. We don't like to, because yeah, this topic, you know, there's a lot of TV programs, a lot of other shows out there that blatantly will fake things just to make it more exciting for dramatic purposes, sounds in the woods. Oh, you know, that must be, that must be Bigfoot. There's not like there's 50 other explanations that it could be, you know? So we really try to, to uh, deviate from that standard sort of Bigfoot TV kind of stereotype where it's all just, everything's a Bigfoot in the woods and they don't really promote any kind of critical thinking or anything. It's like, Hey, well, Maybe maybe Bigfoot isn't the first thing you should jump to when you experience something in the woods that you cannot see, you know. So I think it's just we're, we're trying to hopefully set a different standard with uh, in regards to the topic because there, there's something going on. I mean, there really is. I've talked to so many people at this point who've had encounters, uh, people that have had almost identical encounters, different parts of the country that never talk to each other and, you know, are backwoods kind of types that don't really, I I can't see them being the types that browse the Bigfoot forums and pick up details. (laughs) They have very similar things happening with similar behavioral characteristics with these alleged creatures. So that's, it just, I mean, there's something going on. Not all these people are are making stuff up or uh, misidentifying bears. I mean, that's one of the things I hear all the time is, oh, they're all just misidentifications. And this is usually coming from somebody who's either in an academic setting or suburban or big city kind of person. It's like, well, I think you'd probably be more likely to misidentify a bear because these people who are out there in the woods all the time, they see these things. Hmm. If they see something that's unusual, I think we should give them a listen because they're surrounded by this type of wildlife a lot more than most of the people that are claiming, oh, there's no such thing that there's no way Bigfoot could be real. I mean, how much time do you guys really spend in the woods? You know, so it's um, it's kind of an interesting. Uh, there's a whole lot, a lot of rabbit holes can go off into the, the Bigfoot kind of topic. Yeah, we like that. Never understood the bear thing because even in a region like New England, there's a lot of open expanse. You can get lost in the woods very easily in yes. just even just a state like Connecticut. And Connecticut has a lot of black bears, and they're on all fours all the time. <laughs> the whole having something come by you upright. And misidentifying that as a bear, there's no grizzly bear in in New England, and they only stand up on twos when they're posturing, right? That's the thing. I mean, uh, there's different tiers of sightings, at least from what I have seen and people I've talked to. And there's, you know, there's like a tier that, in my mind, kind of a personal collection in my head, I suppose, of sightings that are really just, to me, I mean, this person... I don't know what they possibly could have misinterpreted with what they saw, right? Where you have clear, unobstructed daylight view of a Sasquatch or something like that. Uh, there are certain category of sightings that, yes, you could put them in that misidentification category. And it's usually you know, the person saw something 300 plus feet away. And it was just a fleeting glimpse of a big black object that went into the woods. That's, that's, you know, there are settings like that. And you could say, okay, you know, maybe they saw the backside of a bear as it disappeared. I mean, that's, that's the point where, you know, saying that it was either a Sasquatch or a bear is, is a bit of a stretch, right? Because you really didn't get a good look at it. But there are people that will claim that as their kind of Bigfoot sighting. And uh, that's why I think it's, it's up for us as researchers to kind of interpret that and put that in different categories and say, you know, okay, well, that, that clearly is a different type of sighting than somebody who saw a Sasquatch from 10 feet away come out of the brush and walk past their camp. I mean, that's, 
again, that's that's just they're they're two different two different tiers. I'm not knocking the person who saw just a fleeting glimpse, but you know, in terms of uh, being able to say one way or another what it was, clearly there's there's a one sighting is a little bit better in terms of what was observed and any kind of behaviors that were noticed that actually become useful then to research because if we have you know a single sighting is not necessarily super useful. I mean, it's interesting and I love hearing people's stories, but what's really interesting as researchers is if you can get a credible pile of sightings and start mapping it out and start seeing, well, okay, the sightings are all happening in this area. Maybe there's a, a group of these creatures. Maybe there's one moving through the area. You know, there's, there's things you can kind of infer from multiple sightings and being able to plot it. You know, is there more instances of rock throwing in this area or reports of wood knocking this sort of stuff. So that's where um, multiple sightings, when you start clustering them together, that's where it becomes useful. Because a lot of times people are not willing to share their sighting right away. I mean, one of the, the good things about, let's say you get a fresh sighting and maybe you can actually go out to that location and find secondary evidence. So maybe this person had a visual sighting. Maybe you go out there, you find some uh, footprint evidence. You can find some hopeful hair samples. So you have multiple layers of evidence there to help validate that person's sighting. But a lot of times people hold on to these stories for years. I've talked to so many people that say, you know, I haven't really told anyone this story in 20 years, you know, aside from close family and friends. And even then they get laughed at, oh, I saw Bigfoot in the woods, you know, how drunk or high were you? So a lot of people actually get traumatized by sharing their experiences just because they're Mm -hmm. relentlessly made fun of or they become the Bigfoot guy at work or whatever. So uh, a lot of those sightings that are older, I mean, if you had a sighting that happened 30 years ago, yeah, you can go to that area and say, well, I mean, this is a wooded area, but you're not going to be able to find any kind of following, follow-up evidence to a setting that happened that long ago. And I think that goes to part of the kind of culture. There still is a little bit of reluctance for a lot of people, especially in good standing, you know, if they're, if they have some kind of a, a job or, or position in life where they really, it does not benefit them to share a story like this. Those are usually the people that you kind of have to really assure that, hey, you know, if you share your story with me, you know, completely respect their wishes. We won't record you, you know, please. But we, we just love hearing it as data kind of point. And, and, and again, I mean, people that let's say, I mean, I've talked to people that are either police or work in you know, local government or business people in the area that having a story like that attached to their name, especially in the business world, probably wouldn't benefit them. So, and, and and it's just very interesting, you know, hearing that sort of thing, because we kind of put people like that in a, in good standing societally, right? They're, they're credible, they, you know, they're involved in the community. They do a lot of things for their community. Um, you know, a lot of people consider them to be you know, very, very professional sort of people. So, so, you know, so they're out hunting or doing whatever they are doing and they see an eight foot tall ape like creature that is not supposed to exist. And, and the mainstream media and, and culture tells us that it's just a big joke. You know, what do you do with that? What does this person do with that? You know, they're often, maybe they'll share their story once or twice. And then they're for years on end at times, they will be thinking to themselves, was I crazy? You know, what did I see? They're, they're, they're doubting themselves. So yeah. um, it, it's, there's a lot of the, the human side of the Bigfoot phenomenon, of course, because you need a person to see a Bigfoot. So you can't have really the Bigfoot topic without people being involved and having experiences. So that for me has been one of the most interesting parts of it. Just, seeing the wide variety of people that have these encounters. Cause you know, the stereotype is, Oh, it's all just drunk rednecks seeing this stuff out in the woods. I mean, you'd be surprised and we're talking 
PhD uh, physicists having encounters on their rural properties. You know, so you have every single walk of life, people that just happen to be in the woods at the right place, at the right time to see a Sasquatch for whatever reason, or something comes into their camp, it kind of messes with them as, as often, usually with Sasquatch encounters, the vast majority of reports are somebody just happened to be, see one, whether or not it was intentional or not on the part of the Sasquatch, I, I don't know, but road crossings are pretty common, fleeting glimpse kind of things where it's, they see the Sasquatch very for a short period of time and it's gone, basically. It, it, it gets away from them as soon as possible. And then the other the other type are uh, people that are often camping or, or backpacking in remote areas that have things happen that are very unusual around their camp. Whether or not there's a visual encounter there, sometimes it varies, but those are the most common by far. Um, so it's a lot of what we have to do with or data-wise is people just randomly having a sighting that they didn't ask for. Majority of the times they did not ask for. It's like if they were to see a bear or a mountain lion it's just kind of a spur of the moment thing. The only thing mm-hmm. is they're seeing something that everyone tells them shouldn't exist. So they're immediately, they're not only having to interpret that, their mind is trying to interpret this massive creature that is often very frightening in appearance because it's larger than anything else that should be out there. And they're trying to, their brain is trying to rack the fact that, well, this thing is here. What am I seeing right now? It's not supposed to be there, at least to what we're told, right? So that's, listening to some of these eyewitness encounters is so interesting about how in the moment they try to process this, this uh, thing. And I've heard it multiple times in the almost exact same way. So it's, it tells me that there's something going on here. There's not just a bunch of dudes running around remote areas in gorilla costumes waiting at the chance to <laughs> jump out at people who are very often armed, uh, which is just not a smart move. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's supremely fascinating in my view. It's very much like the, ufo phenomenon where you have that same stigma and there's some movement on that hopefully maybe in our lifetime we'll have that announcement and the disclosure of the fact that there are hominids walking around all over the planet too that's an interesting point i mean i see a lot of parallels i'm not super into the ufo stuff i have had some pretty crazy experiences though i've, I've seen some stuff uh you know kind of out while bigfoot actually which is funny a lot of people do like to say well you know bigfoots and ufos they're they're interrelated and i don't know maybe they are but I haven't really noticed that as much, I guess, but um, you do see a lot more movement in that UFO sector. I mean, it's a lot more mainstream. I mean, even remember just a few years ago, Storm Roswell type or not Storm Roswell, Storm Area 51. <laughs> uh, it it, it kind of it, it broke into that mainstream sort of, uh, the you know, UFOs are in the mainstream lexicon. Now you have a lot of media personalities talking about it. I mean, just all these pop stars that have shows now where they go look for ghosts and Bigfoot and all this other stuff. But the UFO topic is one that I think there's a lot more talking about going on and people, you know, talk about government involvement and all that sort of stuff and waiting for a disclosure or whatever from the government. And I mean, if you, if I always kind of like doing an exercise occasionally where I'll, I'll ask people in a room to raise their hands, how many people here trust the government and, Usually, you know, there's not, there's a very few hands. So, so I, I kind of wonder, you know, why people would need something like the government to get validation. Um, and there's a lot of talk about Bigfoot, Sasquatch kind of conspiracies the government knows. And I mean, a lot of the theories get pretty outlandish and unbelievable pretty quickly. I mean, we're talking about people saying, oh, there's black helicopters that get 
sent out when people start seeing Bigfoot in an area. Yeah, I've seen that on one of those Bigfoot shows. They saw a helicopter while they were investigating at night, and they all start freaking out, and they're like running away from this helicopter in the woods. And I, I don't get that personally, just because of, and I've heard all the stories. And you know, a lot of times, it, it's these sort of circular stories that keep getting told of, oh, there were Bigfoot bodies taken off the Mount St. Helens when it erupted. I mean, maybe. I mean, I just see, keep hearing the same sort of story over and over. But when it comes to a, sort of a cover up, I think it's a little more simple than that because, and, and I've talked to a lot of folks about this. They think, you know, if there is some sort of a cover up from the government, it probably comes from a middle management place like in say like the national park service or the forest yeah, service yeah. where they just don't want to, they don't want to have to deal with this kind of what they think is bogus. So they'll, they'll, you know, if somebody starts talking about Bigfoot, they'll probably shut it down quickly. But if you look at the way the media treats the subject widely, it's seen as a joke. I mean, you yeah. only have a certain percentage of the population that believes in Sasquatch or wants to look into it. So why would they need to spend all this money and resources on something that's widely seen as a joke? when the media kind of does that job for them, you know, in terms of keeping it in that sort of entertainment reality TV, especially area where it's kind of, it's just a, it's not seen as a serious thing. So, you know, maybe there are bigger conspiracies with it. I mean, I, I really just don't know, but I think a lot of times the more outlandish stuff that people talk about when it comes to this sort of thing is, I think it's a little simpler than that. I think that that maybe boils down to, the thought that the government has resources that other people don't. The person who is backpacking or camping out in the woods, seeing something in the sky or something in the woods versus the government maybe having some scientific equipment or backing to search into these things. That's why people, I think, fall into the category of saying, well, if the government doesn't know about it or if the government doesn't tell us about it, then it must not be real because they have endless resources as opposed to my cousin who just saw them while he was camping in the woods. And I mean, maybe they do. Absolutely a possibility. I mean, I, I think I've talked to people who are you know, either forest service workers because you know a lot of the, a lot of this country is national forest. You, you do have national parks, but they're smaller in size and compared to especially out west, where you know, the Bureau of Land Management owns so much land. And you know, you talk to some of these people, and I've talked to a lot of them that you know they they're kind of open to the idea, and they say, well, you know, it's pretty interesting. Or there's even been certain places, you know, state parks in different states, where pe- where there's people that have records. You know, some of these. Um, you know, Forest Service people or state park employees will keep records of sightings that have happened. I mean, there's even one heard of from a friend of mine in Massachusetts of a, of a state park where they had had sightings from the 1930s of strange, hairy man-like creatures that they would keep on record, which I think is pretty interesting. And, you know, whether or not they're maybe they're not disclosing that kind of stuff because, again, there may be middle management that says, you know, you're, you're looking into the Bigfoot topic. I don't think so, buddy. That's going to make me look like a fool to my superiors. So, I mean, that's that's what we get when you have a lot of bureaucracy in general, right? Mm. People may have different interests, and a lot of people, you know, tend to put their their career and their career stability over perhaps even something like a scientific endeavor or looking into, you know, why are all these people visiting our our park, seeing these things, right? I mean, so that maybe that come that comes down to maybe more of a lesser level, but. Are there people higher up in the government that know? I mean, possibly. Again, it's like with the UFO stuff. Do they know? I mean, obviously they're not. They're not giving us all all of the information. There's clearly stuff that's being withheld, and 
Maybe that's the case. I don't really know. But I think in terms of there being, you know, one of these things where they send special forces out to kill a group of Sasquatch when people see them in the woods. I think that that's a little on the outlandish side to me personally. Like a but, predator movie for sure. Yeah, that, 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 that I think is, is a little fantastical. You know, the, the suppression of information saying, well, hey, maybe maybe we shouldn't publicize these reports. Yeah, that makes more sense. But that may be also the same reason why there's, uh, you know, they, they would want to publicize mountain lion reports, which is another big sort of uh, topic I've looked into, the, the phenomenon of mountain lions in the eastern United States. And there's a lot of conspiracy around that. And there's a lot of parallels to that in the Bigfoot topic, which I find really interesting. And people are, are pretty adamant that, you know, the government is... Uh, you know, actually bringing some of these mountain lions in a lot of cases to deal with deer population. There's just a lot of mistrust between the public. Yeah, it's you'd be surprised how much I've I've heard I've heard some pretty credible people say uh, allege that. So I mean, I I know for example, I did a documentary called Lions of the East, kind of right before COVID started. I started it, I think in late 2018 and finished it. It came out basically right as COVID began which sort of was a, a bummer. I couldn't even do a physical premiere of the film, mm. uh, another story. But essentially for the, it was like a two year period. I looked into the mountain lion topic in New England, all the different States and kind of the way there are different uh, agencies respond to mountain lion settings. So you have New Hampshire has a fish and game department. They've been featured in that show Northwoods law and other stuff, but Vermont, it's like the fish and wildlife, uh, Connecticut. It's uh I think it's Department of Environmental Police or something like that. All these yeah. different states have different kind of roles in which their uh, state government has either fish and game or game wardens. It depends. And But all throughout, throughout New England, there's a lot of stories of mountain lions being seen. I know a lot of people that they scoff at the idea of Bigfoot that are, oh, well, I've seen a mountain lion out in the woods hunting. They're not supposed to be here. They've essentially been extinct since kind of the late 1800s early 1900s in most of New England, but the sightings keep going. And then in, there was that famous case in 2011 in Connecticut where, um, you know, like an hour outside of New York City, Milford, Connecticut area, there was a mountain lion struck by a car and killed. Yeah, yeah. I remember that one. I mean, it's a, that's one of the most heavily suburban areas of New England, period. Mm. And that's where this creature was uh, essentially, you know, their pets going missing when this thing was around there. Big cats slinking through people's yards and the little green belts that are in some of those suburban areas and uh, met its fate in front of a, a car. And that was a big deal because, you know, genetic testing of its of the autopsies showed that it had uh, genetic ties to the Black Hills of South Dakota, which is yeah. kind of one of a known population of mountain lions. So this thing would have had to have come all the way from South Dakota to Connecticut and kind of in between, which is a, that's a heck of a long journey. Yeah, that's a big migration. And I actually met up. I met a police officer a number of years ago uh, at like some paranormal event or something. And he, he happened to see that I was doing this film. I had a poster for it. And he said, well, you know, I'm a police officer about, you know, really close to that area where this thing was killed. And a few days before this creature was killed, I saw a mountain lion cross the road. So he saw this thing crossing the road and... Everyone told him, no, you saw a bobcat. You saw a house cat or something like that. I mean, he was incredulous. He's like, no, I saw a mountain lion. It had a long tail, very large animal, very powerful. And then literally a few miles down the road, three days later, this thing was struck by a car and killed. I mean, the chances that he saw that exact cat are very high. Um, you know, there's not a lot of mountain lions running around in that part of Connecticut. So that, that story really brought up the idea that, well, hey, you have lone male mountain lions from the Western populations that 
there's nothing barring them from coming eastward. And that probably is happening in greater numbers. But for whatever reason, a lot of these states have been reluctant to even acknowledge the, pa- the fact that this could happen in the past. Now it's clearly there. I mean, a lot of these game wardens that people I've talked to will admit, yeah, we're, you know, we, we do acknowledge this can happen. You have these lone males that they, they leave the family group. They're trying to, you know, create a family of their own. They're looking for mates. And they just, there's nothing barring them from coming out this way. You've got unlimited food sources out here in the East in terms of deer. I mean, the mountain lion that are no longer here, they used to be part of that ecosystem, the top predator. And now they're not, they're not anymore. They've been displaced. So there's nothing stopping them keeping these deer in check. So. Yeah, there's that. There's a lot of other sort of stories. I mean, I had a woman contact me. Or actually, I had a biologist contact me from New Hampshire. The guy has done work for various states. He does a lot of environmental um, evaluations of, you know, when you're building, let's say, a property or development, he has to do a study on how it's going to impact the environment. I mean, this is pretty standard when you're building in wooded areas or let's say you're tearing up a swamp to build a condo complex. You have to hire biologists to do a study of what that impact is going to be. Are you going to threaten any species that are in the area? So this guy reaches out to me and he's done a lot, you know, extremely uh, credible guy. He's worked in biology his whole career, done a lot of stuff, done work with mountain lions out West. And he was doing one of these ecological surveys of an area in New Hampshire and happened to come across a very credible mountain lion uh, scat, you know, uh, essentially fecal matter you know, knew exactly what he was dealing with and sent that in for testing to a uh, lab in, I, th- I believe it was Wyoming, because they were doing a uh, study on mountain lions and, you know, Wyoming fish and game. Obviously, mountain lions is something they deal with a lot because there's a big population of them out there. So they were testing these mountain lion scat samples from New Hampshire to kind of compare and said that they came back as male mountain lion. And uh, the state of New Hampshire Fish and Game Department actually then, you know, once they were presented with those results, sent a letter to the Wyoming Fishing Game or whatever their department is called. And the Wyoming guys essentially refuted the evidence and said, you know, kind of backtracked on their initial statement on be, on behalf of the New Hampshire Fishing Game. I mean, that's a little weird, right? Yeah, so yeah. you have you have credible evidence that's DNA test that they're saying, nope, this is not the case. And they uh-huh. so they say it once and they retract that statement. And, you know, this biologist, he basically reached out to me and said, you know, I'm not going to say this is a conspiracy, but this is a conspiracy. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's basically what he said. And again, this is the last person I would have expected to do that uh, because of, you know, how, how esteemed this guy was. And then there was a woman, a famous case in uh, 2016 or so, where her horse was attacked by something. She lived in rural Massachusetts, like central Massachusetts. And um, horse was attacked by something. They didn't know what. They thought it was maybe a bear or something. The horse had these huge gashes in it. And there, there was clearly evidence of some kind of a scuffle that happened in this horse corral outside. So and they just assumed it was a bear. And then they call, of course, the Massachusetts Environmental Police and they come out and do a kind of evaluation. And, and they, they essentially said, well, actually, it was owner negligence that caused the, the horse to get injured. <laughs> Which was... What? Yeah, it was it was crazy. So, and, and her, the woman and her husband that really ticked them off. I mean, it's like victim blaming. A lot, yeah, a lot of these horse people they they take very good care of their animals. And I will say, you know, having been to that property, they had one of the best kept horse kind of uh, corral enclosures, whatever you call it, horse barn I've ever seen. I mean, it was immaculate. They really treated these things like people treat their dogs and cats. They love these animals. So it was very unusual to imagine they would do that because essentially they had found part of a gate 
that was smashed open and a latch that, that held together some of the wooden fencing was broken off. And so this woman was kind of enraged by that and decided to scour the entire property, look for other evidence and, and literally got down on her hands and knees and was searching part of the fence posts and found these scratch marks in the side of one of these fence posts. And there were these, oh, there were these small hairs embedded that were essentially a light brownish kind of uh, tannish colored hair. So she collected the samples from that. And then along the fence post down low, I mean, we're talking a foot, a foot or two above the ground, which has been very low for a horse to be, there's a trail of blood on this, um, this fence post. She scraped that off and collected it, you know, thinking, well, this is obviously evidence of this bear or whatever attacked my horse, <clears throat> sends it into testing at the University of Florida, uh, you know, very credible DNA lab. The results come back a couple months later, male mountain lion. Jeez. Two samples, two samples. They had hair and blood. I mean, that's two different sources of DNA, hair with the follicles and and blood samples. I mean, you can't get better than that. If you find just blood or hair, that's good. But if you're able to find basically two biological samples that have the same, you know, result, that is, that's pretty credible. So then she reaches out to the state of Massachusetts uh, environmental police and they essentially say, well, we want to have this retested at a lab that we both agree on. Because we don't agree with those like results. The FBI. Yeah. <laughs> they don't agree with the results. So, so she says, okay, all right, let's go. How about the University of Arizona? They have a very credible DNA lab. I mean, these are some of the top DNA testing labs in the country. Mad period. cats in Arizona, too. Yeah. So they, they know what they're they know what they're dealing with. So they send it to University of Arizona. They do the testing, whatever, a couple months later, same, same exact result from two samples, hair and blood, male mountain lion. And the lady told me, well, from that point on, Massachusetts, no responses to phone calls. They dropped the issue. No, they don't want to talk wow. about it, essentially. She, she, her whole point was, she, she, again, she thought it was a bear or some other creature. Yeah. But the state, by saying that it was her fault that her horses got injured, <laughs> you know, they, they basically said um, they, they're the ones who made her go on that sort of intense investigation. So. She wanted to get that posted on their website because they're on the website in Massachusetts. They have a couple confirmed mountain lion instances. So she was hoping to get that up there just to kind of raise public awareness. But for whatever reason, they didn't want to talk about it. And um, it confuses me still because that's just bad PR. I mean, instead mm -hmm. of just yeah. facing it head on, you're just ignoring it. And I hear this story all the time from other states. But those are two interesting cases where you know, there was actual testing done that was without a shadow of a doubt that then, you know, kind of gets shoved to the side, if you will. And that, that happens a lot with this topic. And essentially what had happened, I mean, was apparently the, the reason why there was a kind of scuffle is one of the horses was attacked and the other, and it was probably a, a, a juvenile a mountain lion, a smaller kind of mountain lion. It was desperate. They normally, mountain lions wouldn't attack a horse. That's way too big for them. They usually go after, you know, smaller deer or baby, baby animals, you know, baby elk, whatever, because that's just an easier kill than the whole adult creature. Mm -hmm. But the one of the, there was two horses and one of them probably attacked the mountain lion. And that's why that fence latch got broken. And that's why this, this mountain lion was probably bleeding and dying because it had gotten attacked by the horse after it initiated an attack. So there was, there was clearly evidence of a scuffle and that's why this mountain lion was bleeding and probably went off and died somewhere in the woods. You know, imagine if they'd found this corpse out there, but Oh, By the yeah. time this had all happened, was would have been uh, this 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 body would probably be long gone. Just the way that the woods devour everything, it kind of dies. And a lot of animals, mm -hmm. when they're injured and dying, they put themselves in a place they hide and die in a sort of spot where they're not going to be found as easily. 
Yeah. In your opinion and throughout your travels, what's the craziest story, the craziest thing that's ever happened to you when you've been out in the wilderness? Whether it be cryptid related or just any part of your adventure, something went wrong or whatever. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, because a lot of stuff that you've happened is it's not necessarily you can't just jump to the Bigfoot conclusion. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff that happens, but man, I'll give you I'll give you two examples. One is craziest kind of one of the craziest non Bigfoot related things we had happen <laughs> running into Satanists in the woods. That was, oh, uh, shit. <laughs> that was, that was very weird. So this was last summer. We were up in, uh, in Oregon in the Mount hood wilderness area, which is beautiful, beautiful spot. I mean, Mount hood, absolutely incredible. Um, you know, only, only draw back or <laughs> downside to the Mount hood areas. You're close to Portland, Oregon. Hmm. which is not, not a great place at, at the moment. I mean, it's just a mess. And I think that may be kind of what, what we experienced was people from that area going out there. But so essentially the Mount Hood, Oregon area, it's a, it's a long history of Sasquatch sightings. I mean, we were pointed to that area by um, Cliff Berrickman of uh, the show Finding Bigfoot. He has a museum out there in Boring, Oregon, on the way to Mount Hood called the North American Bigfoot Center. Really well put together museum all about the Sasquatch topic, very serious look at it. I would highly recommend it if anyone's traveling through that area. Uh, Cliff's great. You know, they have a sightings map of everything in that whole Pacific Northwest region. I mean, the Pacific Northwest in general is just a place where there's so many Sasquatch sightings. It's where the name Bigfoot originated, of course. And basically from that wilderness, from Northern California to Southern Alaska and everything in between, it's that temperate rainforest and some of the best environments for something like a Sasquatch to exist in. That's why you have most sightings in the world are from that area. It just kind of makes sense. Still very remote. So we're in the Mount Hood area and we go to a spot that has a history of sightings. We're being taken around by Connor Anderson, who's one of the uh, one of Cliff's guys at the museum there. Very knowledgeable, does a lot of local research in that area. We go to an area with a very interesting uh, sighting that had happened where a guy was fishing with his kids at the river and the Sasquatch essentially comes out of the woods and starts coming at them and they're freaking out. All he had to defend himself was a fishing pole. And he actually puts it out, you know, in front of him to kind of keep this thing at bay. And this Sasquatch comes up and is pushing the the tip of the fishing rod essentially away from them. So they get the heck out of there. Very fascinating encounter. It's in Joe Bielart's book, uh, The Oregon Bigfoot Highway, which is a fantastic collection of of stories from that area by, uh, you know, kind of Joe Bielart, old time researcher from that area. So we were like, oh, this is a great spot. Let's go there. We can talk about the sighting. We can film. It's a great area. And there's an old road that kind of winds through there, a little bridge. And there's a camp that's down right beneath the road and sort of over a little hill. And you, if you're up on the road, you can see down into the camp. But if you're up and down in the camp, you can't really see up to the road. So, you know, we left all our cars up there and there was about seven or eight of us at the time. And there was another car parked there already. We could hear people down by, by the river. And we're like, oh, maybe if you put people fishing or doing whatever, they're just kind of hanging out. As it starts getting dark, you know, we're all set up. We're about to start making a fire. And, you know, we start seeing there's people moving around in the woods down there. We're like, okay, maybe these people are also camping out. That kind of stinks, you know, because we were hoping to be alone. You know, that's typically we don't want a lot of people in the area. But I go back up to the car and there's a couple of us hanging out behind one of the guy's pickups and he's not going to be staying there. So they're getting ready to leave. And out of the woods, all of a sudden, this guy walks out. I mean, right up the road toward, from us, just middle of nowhere woods, this dude walks out. He's kind of shocked to see us, but then does this weird kind of walk going past us. And he's wearing this weird golden vest type thing, 
very tight pants, very lanky, emaciated looking dude, creepy looking. And we're all, I, I was the first to see him and I'm looking, I'm looking at the rest of the guys. I'm thinking, what the heck? Who is this guy? And this is just so weird. And then everyone notices him. We all kind of give each other the stink eye like, what the heck? <laughs> and the guy's truck happened to have a, you know, a front and rear dash cam filming. So we got the whole thing on video. And one of the guys, one of our guys just blurts out to him, going for an evening stroll? It's kind of awkward. But the guy was just like, uh-huh. And just proceeded to walk past us like nothing is wrong. And we're just like, this is the middle of nowhere. This is super weird. And, you know, we were all packing heat at the time. So I kind of made sure I flashed my, my 357 just to kind of show, hey, you know, yeah, you, you're not. <laughs> yeah, because that's, you know, oftentimes, I mean, out in the woods, I'm more worried about people than I am anything else. You know, mm. wildlife, okay, you can deal with it. But people are unpredictable. You're not going to be able to use bear techniques against, you know, bear avoidance techniques don't work on human beings, right? He keeps walking. He just walks up and we're all just like, what? This is so weird. I mean, there's nothing out here. He's just going out there. And so then it starts getting more dark. And we notice down in that, by the creek area further off, we start, we see these tiki torches lit in this kind of a circle. And, and we're thinking, okay, this, I don't, I do not like the way this is going. And I, my buddy and I kind of snuck around a little bit. There's these sort of trails and we figured out where that guy had come out of. There was a small trail comes up to that main road. Essentially he thought that we were all in camp. So he was going to come up on that road. Cause again, when we're in camp, we can't see the road up there, but you're up on the road. You can look down in camp. He was going to circumnavigate us just to scope us out and see what we were about. I don't know what, for what reason. I mean, I'm not saying they were there to kill us or whatever, but they were probably just trying to see what, what we were doing there and all that kind of stuff. And if we're regular campers, but I found the path that he took. And so then, you know, we're, we're just like, let's just pack up our stuff and go. And I look into the truck that's parked there. There's only one truck and there's, you know, pentagram, there's, there's bones hanging inside of the car, golden painted bones, animal bones. And, uh, we see these tiki torches and, you know, noises coming out of that area. People, I don't know if they're chanting or whatever, but, we we're like, yeah, I think we're gonna leave. This is just not. This is not my vibe. So probably a good idea. Yeah. So that was weird, and I mean, the fact that we 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 caught him kind of trying to scope us out was a little bit freaky too. Just the way he was dressed was super weird, like a golden vest. I, I have no explanation for it. I don't know what they were doing or what they were up to, but that was probably the weirdest non-animal related kind of thing. And again, that's why a bunch of times I worry about people out in the woods because they're unpredictable. We've been in a lot of areas where there's, you know, history of murders or people going missing. I mean, just all this kind of stuff. So that's what you got to worry about. That's why we're always armed when out there. And we, we highly suggest people do that just because of, um, you don't know when you're going to encounter something like that. And that can often just as a deterrence, maybe are, are just, you know, showing that, you know, cause it, obviously we were in an area where it was legal to open carry Maybe that was just enough to discourage this person from trying something. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to assume, but the situation ended without any kind of escalation or anything, which is really nice. So that was weird. And then I guess in terms of uh, maybe non-human related sort of things, we've had things that I kind of put in a camp of maybe Bigfoot activity, maybe sort of. I mean, we've been all over the place and just trying to think because we've had a, a bunch of stuff happen, but. This past uh, May, we were up in Alaska. I've got a buddy who has a remote property out there that is, you know, more than an hour from the nearest town. I mean, you've got to take a boat out there. You can't drive there. 
you have to take a boat um, on the Kenai Peninsula. Absolutely, just one of the most breathtaking places I've ever been to. Remote kind of fishing property, and they've been having weird stuff going on out there for years. He reached out to me about it about a year ago and was telling me, you know, we've had stuff that I just cannot explain. You know, people think it's Bigfoot, rocks being thrown at them, rocks being thrown over hundreds of feet from the shore into a boat at night. Uh, things going missing, things hitting the side of the cabin, all kinds of crazy stuff. So we're, we spent a week out at this property and there's every type of animal you can imagine out there from brown bears slash grizzly bears, black bear, mountain goat, moose, just on land, lynx, wolves, everything. And then in the ocean you have, because uh, the bay, the ocean is right there, you're essentially right in the bay. And it's that temperate rainforest area. It's kind of the northern terminus of the one I was mentioning a little while ago. You've got humpback whales, orcas, seals, sea lions, everything you can imagine, both terrestrially and in the water there. It's unbelievable. So we're out there for a week. and We had a lot of kind of interesting incidents happen. Um, and one of them was we were camped out at night in this area behind this cabin in this forest. And you know we were hearing what sounded like something stopping around and doing wood knocks, which is a supposed Sasquatch kind of behavior and all this other just weird stuff. You would hear clearly what's – and this happened multiple times while we were out there at night – what sounds like a rock being thrown into the water, but on the way down from this hill, it would hit another rock and then fall into the water. It wasn't just, you know, a rock rolling off a hill. I mean, it wasn't that steep of a hill where that would have been able to happen. And, you know, we tried to, to replicate it. That was weird. But we were essentially one of the weirder things that happened, too, was on our way back down the cabin one of these days, I noticed this big handprint on the back of the cabin. You know, very greasy looking handprint, very weird sort of right hand configuration on the side of the metal sheeting on the cabin. I thought that's really kind of weird. Uh, and that's one of those things that you look at and it's 50 50. It's not ambiguous. Like, you know, let's say you find an impression in the woods that's it, around there. It's all moss. So you find we find big impressions in the ground. You say, well, that could have been one of us. That could have been a moose. It could have been a bear. It's it's just there's no definition. This is you know clear. With, you know, all dermal ridges, which essentially are only found in primates, which are the lines on your hands and feet. That's only primates. So us, gorillas, chimps, orangutans, that kind of thing. Uh, some of the other lesser primates have that, but that's it. So that's very unambiguous. 50-50, that's either a person or something primate-like. And there's nothing that's supposed to be primate-like in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. I mean, this is one of the most remote places probably in North America that at least we've been to. We've been to pretty much all of the most remote places in the lower 48. And this is, I mean, Alaska is that times 10, uh, just endless, right? So it was really interesting. I mean, it, the, the, like I said, the way it was configured was super strange. You couldn't see a thumb. Fingers were long and going over these metal kind of uh, metal sheeting and there's was, was, there was ridges on it. So we couldn't really replicate it that well. And the only way we could get it to do is uh, we put lotion on our hand and slapped it up on the side of the cabin because, I mean, no one was that sweaty that we could get that to really stick to where you could see it. And there's some researchers who theorize that Sasquatch have a stickier kind of residue in their hands, like some gorillas and chimps might. It's called sebum, which is sort of um, it's like the residue in the hands. And, and other primates are sort of known to have a stickier residue than human beings. Uh, it kind of helps them with gripping stuff and they have different needs than we do as people. You know, we don't have to climb trees and, and you know, carry a lot of this stuff around like, um, you know, our ancestors might have, but we've sort of evolved away from that. Whereas a lot, there's a lot of reports for, from North America of people finding weird handprints on their car or the back of windows, even um, windows on houses. 
that kind of thing. So we found this and it was really weird. And we've showed it to some researchers that think, you know, it might be the real deal. I don't want to say it is hundred percent because we're not sure yet, but we did actually manage to get then a researcher from up in Alaska named Larry Beans Baxter, who's a, a former law enforcement. He was able to collect the sample, document it, lifted the print and collected samples of it for possible DNA. So um, we can wow. hopefully get it tested. So that was really, really unique. I mean, there's a lot of other weird stuff, incidents we've had happen, but that was probably one of my favorite ones recently, especially because we were in this place with just such a crazy history of, of weird stuff happening. And we heard, you know, some of this weird stuff, like you would just hear randomly a gunshot sound. <laughs> and I mean, there's, there's no chance of anybody being out there aside from you guys, from, from the people that are there. And we weren't shooting guns. And we've recorded this on multiple times. And, you know, the property owner says, oh, yeah, we hear that kind of stuff all the time. It's some sort of a noise emanating from up in the hills, whether it's, a, you know, some people call it a power knock or a wood knock. Um, it was really weird. And we've had the, the signature looked at by um, David Ellis of the Olympic Project, who does a lot of audio analysis, absolute wizard at it. He says typically gunshots, you hear there's two, when you're looking at them, like a spectrogram analysis, which breaks down the sound signatures, there would be two sounds associated with a gunshot. There's actually the initial explosion from the gun, from the gunpowder, and there's a secondary one. But to our ears, it just sounds like a single sound. I mean, you just hear, but there's actually, when you break it down, it's, I mean, it's within like less than a second where it happens, where you have the one sound, the second sound, and they blend together as one. Whereas these sounds that were recorded out there, these gunshots, as we've called them, there's only one sound, which would indicate one strike happening. And I mean, we heard other wood knocks from closer distances. Like we were up at a a campfire up there. We would hear these knocks. And then again, what sounds like a rock being thrown into the water, but along the way hitting other rocks that's going in, Hmm. Uh, which, and then we were able to directly contrast that to when like 30 sea lions moved into the bay about halfway through our trip there, you could hear them at night splashing and you hear, you know, doing their stupid noises that they do. It's totally, (laughs) totally different sound, totally different sound than what sounds and again we we, re- we replicated you know i took a rock and threw it into the water and had it hit the beach on the way down that's what it sounded like so i don't know i mean we had thermal cameras look we would always look whenever we'd have something happen and nothing i mean but the area was so thick and if something was up on this hill above you you wouldn't have any chance of seeing it i mean i think these things operate in that way you know if sasquatch is you know all it's reported to be they they typically don't like to be kind of out in the open. They like to keep things between humans and um, and themselves. At least that's from a lot of the reports and a lot of the encounters that are non-visual encounters. So yeah, it, that place is just wild. And I mean, hoping to get back there at some point, but uh, very, very intense kind of stories out of that area in Alaska and, and the chance of somebody being out there and playing a prank. I mean, it's, literally would be putting their life at risk. You have to have a a pretty intense boat to get out there and they can't even get out there from October to March. The the seas are so rough. You cannot get out there. And if you get hurt out there, I mean, anyway, a lot of these places you go into, you know, you park your car and backpack seven miles up a mountain in, in the lower 48, that's dangerous. So you get hurt. You're kind of on your own, but when you're an hour plus from the nearest small town, the nearest small port in the middle of nowhere, Alaska with animals that can easily kill you. If you get hurt out there, you're truly on your own. So yeah. for people to be going to length to try and prank or fake something out there, it's just, to me, honestly, it's just ridiculous. Impossible. 
kind of unrealistic. That's far less yeah. likely than something like an, an undiscovered creature being out there because there is the space for it out there. There are the resources. There is a history. The First Nations people up there talk about it all the time and all the other stuff going on. would love to get out to Alaska. That'd be amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Alaska, it's another, it's another world out there. It really is. Have you done any investigations in like the Cascade Mountains of Washington at all? So not specifically the Cascades. We have been out to Washington. We, I, I did manage to go one day to, uh, it was April of 2021. We went out to the Olympic Peninsula of Washington, which is sort of temperate rainforest. And it's, it's kind of a, a, the other side of Washington from the Cascades. Well, not the other side, but um, you have Seattle and then you have the Olympic Peninsula sort of to the left of it. And the Cascades run from Canada to Oregon directly to the right of Seattle. So if you're in that area, you can either go right or left and you're in two of the best kind of areas for Sasquatch reports in the world. Both mm-hmm. the Cascades. The Cascades is just a bigger environment than the Olympics, but the Olympics is one of the more uh, more lush rainforests. And you have places like the Ho Rainforest, which it's like out of this world. It's something you, you think... I never would imagine this existed in North America. So we managed to go to Mount Rainier. We flew in, we drove up to Mount Rainier and that was about it. But the Cascades, there's just so much there. I'd love to go to the Northern section of it, which is a little bit less, less crowded part. There's just such a good history of reports out there. But um, that trip, we were primarily focused on the Olympic Peninsula because there is a research group out there called the Olympic Project, um, which is comprised of a lot of researchers, a lot of people from hunting backgrounds. They have even academics in their group and they've been documenting Sasquatch encounters in the Olympic Peninsula for a number of years. And we went to an area called the so-called nest site where there's um, these unusual ground nests that were discovered in about 2016 and whether or not they're Sasquatch, I don't know, but they're very compelling and intriguing. Uh, there's these large, massive huckleberry uh, branch nests that are woven together that were found. There's like 23 to 26 of them found by a um, surveyor going out there in private land that was about to be logged on the Olympic Peninsula and found these weird nests and had been, you know, this surveyor had been working out there for 20 plus years and all over the Pacific Northwest had never come across anything like this. Wow. And I mean, just, just hiking in there last year was so brutal and you've got eight put eight foot tall huckleberry branches whipping you in the face left and right Going, I don't know what, what this guy was doing down there, but those surveyors are very dedicated to their jobs, um, you know, timber surveying especially. So he found these and he essentially managed to contact the owner of the property. And the owner of the property knew Derek Randalls of the Olympic Project, a local guy. And he was a Bigfoot researcher and um, contacted him and essentially said, you know, what is going on here? And they brought in some primatologists and other people who were very intrigued by these almost look like gorilla ground nests. They were sort of in that sort of realm. Um, and again, I, I mean, are they definitely Sasquatch? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think they even know, but they've done some testing on it. I don't know exactly what the results are, whether or not they're public yet, but uh, they've had encounters where they've run into something, possibly building a nest, and they found handprints and footprints they've gathered out there, a lot of weird audio over the years. They've been kind of studying this area for quite a while. We actually got to be the first people to ever camp out there with them in that in that sort of nest site, which was pretty interesting. Didn't have anything weird happen, but just seeing that terrain out there and that rainforest is absolutely stunning. I mean, it kind of makes sense that something would want to live there. You have very cool conditions every year. They don't get a ton of snow, never gets super hot out there. I mean, it's a rainforest, but not like a tropical rainforest, temperate. So there's a lot of sort of interesting uh, wildlife 
And there's no grizzly bears on the Olympic Peninsula for whatever reason. They never made it out that way. I mean, there used to be grizzlies all up and down the Cascades. And to this day in Canada and British Columbia, they still have them. And Vancouver Island, which is also one of the top Bigfoot places in the world, nicknamed Sasquatch Island, right across. Literally, you can see it. And you're you're on the Olympic Peninsula. You look across the bay. You can see Canada. You see Vancouver Island. Vancouver Island has been a hotbed of Bigfoot activity. But there are grizzlies on Vancouver Island. But for whatever reason, the Olympic Peninsula was so impenetrable that grizzlies never made it out there, which I find really interesting. I mean, there's no reason they they shouldn't be there. Uh, They just couldn't get in, apparently. Is that that uh, off the kind of beaten path, I suppose, which is, uh, you know, again, kind of mind blowing. I didn't know that. So that, like, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of those stories I just talked about from that Mount Hood area to that place in Alaska to the Olympic Peninsula. That is all the same basically chain of uh, tempered rainforests that go from Northern California into Oregon, British Columbia or Washington, British Columbia, Southern Alaska. You've got the whole part of Southeast Alaska. I mean, the capital of Alaska, Juneau. You cannot drive to it. You have to either fly or take a boat in. So you basically just have thousands of miles of coastline of very jagged mountains and rainforest, bays and tons of inlets and tons of wildlife. I mean, this is absolutely, and people have been in those areas, but there's still so much remoteness out there. I mean, it just makes sense that something could stay hidden out there in, in relative ease. And, you know, there are sightings, sure, but, um, you know, we, we haven't, haven't come up with anything conclusive, of course. Yeah. You mentioned these ground nests and I had a thought which hadn't really occurred to me before. So we're thinking about Sasquatch or Bigfoot and maybe having minimal numbers, maybe the small amount of sightings or encounters. Could it be possibly thinking along those lines, like certain snow cats, they'll go their entire lives without mating and then Mm. they'll mate once, meet their mate they'll separate and go their own way and never made again. And that keeps their numbers low. Could it possibly be the same for Sasquatch and Bigfoot where they live their entire lives and mate only once. And that's why we've maybe never seen these ground nests or why these ground nests are maybe even covered by foliage or whatever after the deed is done. So it's just a thought that I had very interesting. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. I mean, unfortunately, with this topic, a lot of mostly what we have are just thoughts because there isn't a lot. To, there's a lot of other stuff to go off. I mean, there's tons of sightings and a lot of uh, you know alleged footprint and um, DNA evidence in terms of hair, unknown samples, you know that kind of stuff. Audio, of course. So there's a lot, a lot of theorizing that goes on. So I, mean, I welcome any kind of ideas. Well, I mean, it's interesting because there's different schools of thought. I suppose the typical sort of flesh and blood perspective on Bigfoot is that, of course, it's a undiscovered primate, probably, you know, we've heard of stuff like Gigantopithecus theorized before, which is the largest primate in human history, lived in, in China and parts of Southeast Asia. It was absolutely massive, but now we think it was more related to the orangutan. The only fossil evidence, by the way, we have of Gigantopithecus ever existing are teeth bones and part of a jawbone. There's literally nothing else that exists of the largest ape in history, yet People say, you know, where are the Bigfoot bones? They say, where are the Gigantopithecus bones? <laughs> this thing is, you know, we know this thing was real and it was it was King Kong proportions, you know, 10 plus feet probably. Uh, we don't know if it was bipedal or not, but it was, and it would have been around, you know, I think 12, 14,000 years ago. So it probably would have interacted with local humans. So imagine seeing 
something like this. Some people have thought, well, maybe the Gigantopithecus is what the Yeti stories came from. Maybe that's their surviving examples of that. Uh, but there's been so many hominids and hominins found in recent years. I mean, the Hobbit, Homo floresiensis in Indonesia discovered that was, you know, kind of a Hobbit-like person, Homo genus, that, you know, guess what? There's sightings of a small hairy man-like creature in neighboring Sumatra in the rainforest going on to this day. So there's a lot there, I mean, I think to work with. So there's the Gigantopithecus theories, that sort of thing. So flesh and blood, essentially, they're saying that Sasquatch is a biological creature. It is, you know, lives of the land. So obviously it has to reproduce, it dies, it eats. You know, it, it should be, you should be able to find evidence of it because it's a flesh and blood animal. That's kind of been the, usually the prevailing thoughts in the Bigfoot kind of topic. The other side then is, is the more paranormal side where people link it with UFOs or they link uh, that, you know, there's a big prevalence in the idea that Sasquatch is interdimensional and can turn into a ball of light and travel between dimensions. I mean, you know, it's people have different theories and I'm not knocking anyone necessarily. I don't necessarily fit into that group. I find it more flesh and blood because I mean, even if it is, you know, something paranormal, there, there's clearly physical evidence being left. I mean, there's rocks being thrown, there are footprints being found. So there is some sort of physical reality going on whatever it is. Um, so that's kind of the, the divisions. And there's a lot of other different theories within those, but those are typically what's been looked at. So obviously when you, if you're dealing with something paranormal, there's really no rules. You can have a million of these things, right? Hypothetically, there would be no need to follow any biological markers or indicators. So, but then at the same time, you'd expect, well, okay, if there's Sasquatch being seen in the mountains, why don't we see people seeing them in little forested areas in Brooklyn, you know, seeing a Sasquatch <laughs> materialize or whatever the case may be. The sightings typically of Sasquatch around North America happen in heavily wooded areas with a pretty good amount of precipitation per year. I mean, there just aren't sightings in even rural parts of Kansas, or maybe there's a small section of woods that just doesn't happen. The Rocky Mountains has a history. So you, you have areas that the sightings typically come from are obviously the Pacific Northwest, like I was mentioning, much of the forests in Canada uh, the Rocky Mountains throughout the Intermountain West, where you have those, you know, kind of alpine environments and those those forest environments, there aren't sightings going on, you know, in, in the middle of uh, the desert areas of Utah or Colorado. They're going on in the mountains where there's our food and water and other resources. The Appalachian Mountain chain from basically south to north, just a ton of sightings because those areas are still very rugged to this day. I mean, I, I live in New Hampshire and, you know, we're the second most forested state in the country. And... There's tons of credible sightings from up here and, and even Maine, just absolutely remote. Um, and New York, upstate New York, the Adirondacks. And then down in the south, you have those swamps. So like Florida, there's some national forests in Florida, places like the Everglades. That's typically, these are the areas where sightings come from. The edge of civilization or the wilderness. They're not Again, they're not happening in rural places in the Midwest for the most part. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be viable habitat. So if it is you know, something that's flesh and blood, that's kind of what we have to look at. And some people have thought, well, are there, maybe there's only a few thousand throughout North America. I've even heard people say there's more than 200,000 in North America, which is a huge number. I mean, yeah, I would believe it's maybe a little on the lower side in the sense of, you know, maybe, maybe not even, uh, you know, five digits. So, you know, we've got like 10, 10,000 plus. I don't know. Yeah. That may seem like a lot, but Again, the amount of remote territory and space there still is in North America. I mean, you spread 10,000 animals in that area. It's crazy. Yeah. I think it, in Colorado, there's like 7,000 plus mountain lions alone. 
and people rarely ever see those things in in Maine. There's thirty thousand plus black bear, and you know they're not. You, know, you see evidence of them, sure, and you, people do see them, but you're not seeing. You know, there's not fifty bears at one time because people see it here a large number like that, thirty thousand. They think, wow, you're probably falling over these things. They're all over the place. No, I mean, there's that much space that each of these animals can hide in a pretty good amount. So 10,000 roughly, I mean, this is complete speculation and conjecture. There's no really evidence to support this at all. But let's say you have, you know, one national forest area and you maybe have one or two family groups living there. That's not a lot. If you're talking about, let's say just conservatively say half a million acres, that's that's a ton of space mm. for for you know ten animals to live in when you've got all these other animals using that same environment. And I mean, how many times do people go in the woods and don't run into any kind of animal? Yeah, especially yeah. if they're territorial. Well, yeah, I mean, so that's the thing. And there seems to be a curiosity. A lot of encounters, as I said earlier, takes place. People that are camping in remote areas have certain things happen, or like my buddy's property up in Alaska, where there seems to be just a curiosity or a long ongoing thing going on. I mean, they've had stuff go missing out there. He had a hatchet or I actually was like a proper ax, big one go missing. Thought, okay, what the heck bought a new one. And like a year or two later, that same ax that went missing shows up just leaning up against the side of the cabin when they come out there one time. It's like, it's almost like a trickster kind of thing. It's like none of us left that there. You know, we didn't do that. This thing has been gone for a long time. And the other things like that, I mean, just recently he was out there and they were having something, there's an outhouse, you know, it's like 30, 40 feet in the woods, maybe a little more just in the woods, you know, because uh, there's plumbing is so remote and something keeps propping the door of the outhouse open with a stick. And people who he has out there keep complaining about it. They say somebody keeps propping the open the outhouse open you know, for whatever reason. It's like a trickster having fun, kind of messing with people sort of thing. So, um, yeah, so th- that's an interesting question about the, um, the numbers and the, the possibility of how many there may be out there. Because again, I think 10,000 or maybe even a little more than that, you spread that out throughout North America. You've obviously got certain areas that probably have more, they're more viable habitat like the Pacific Northwest or like the Appalachian mountain chain. Um, there just seems to be more, uh, more good environment, good food sources, that sort of thing. There's less people now out in some of these more remote areas. Because again, I was, I was talking about earlier, people typically stick to the trails in, in national parks and national forests. They stick to the campgrounds. They don't just say, all right, I'm going to go to this trail and just bushwhack three miles off into that direction. People don't really do that anymore. Some, some do hunters, you know, but that's a small fraction of the population of the people that are in the woods. Most vast majority of people are sticking to the trails where it's safe, where other people have been. They're not deviating off of that sort of human, uh, human path. You think environmentally, especially when you're talking about Northern California, the largest tree in the world and the largest trees in the world are in Northern California. And these animals are supposedly very large. Could that be their native environment globally, essentially, maybe, or even just in North America and have migrated to other environments that are very similar, like the Appalachian mountains and swamps that are similar in the moisture content. But it is intriguing that the Pacific Northwest has some of the largest trees on the planet. And that could yeah. go in conjunction with such a large animal compared to us. Yeah, that's def- definitely interesting. I mean, because as I was mentioning earlier, the Gigantopithecus theory is sort of one that was postulated for a while. The idea that this thing probably came on the land, so-called land bridge 
from Asia with all the other species that came to North America. But there's been a lot of doubts cast on that theory as of late. I mean, I think a lot of people are sort of moving away from that theory a little bit that maybe humans were here before that land bridge. So what about all these other animals? You know, maybe there's something else going on. I don't know. I mean, I know there's there's evidence now of humans being here previously than you know, the, the, the ancestors of the Native Americans would have crossed the land bridge. A lot of actually Native people I've talked to, they're really against that. They don't, they think they were here way, way before the land bridge. Um, you know, whether or not there's evidence for that, I don't know. I haven't looked into it as much, but, you know, the idea that uh, you have something primate-like in North America, aside from humans, you know, where would this thing come from? I don't know. And, and you do see those environments in Northern California, the redwood trees, and even not even at, you know, just the rest of the Pacific Northwest, you have these Douglas fir trees out there that are at some points almost as impressive as some of the redwoods. You know, they're not quite as big as the redwoods or the sequoias, but uh, just very prehistoric looking, very interesting how these environments are. And as I mentioned, very lush, uh, just massive, massive trees. And, you know, a Sasquatch standing next to a redwood tree probably would be dwarfed, you know, it'd be like yeah. comical almost. So despite how large they are. So I don't know. I mean, certainly interesting idea. You know, maybe they moved out from these areas I and mean, wherever they came from, whatever they are, that's really at this point still unknown. But um, as I was talking about the Gigantopithecus and the lack of fossil evidence, gorillas and chimps, there's actually very little in the fossil records that indicate they ever really existed. Uh, because, you know, those animals live in environments like in Central Africa, the Congo and other places. Chimps and gorillas have lived for millions of years in these environments that are extremely acidic in the soil content, which is you know, the case with all these temperate rainforests and uh, deciduous kind of forests in North America where you have high acidity, which means that bones and remains usually don't last very long. It's not very conducive for fossilization. Think about where fossils come from in North America. It's places like the deserts in Utah or or uh, parts of uh, you know Montana and some of these areas where there's this desert environment that maybe a long time ago was a forest, but now it's this environment that is preserved to remain. So gorillas and chimps, not a lot of evidence for them. So uh, where, where Sasquatch is typically seen, it's environments that aren't great for fossil discoveries. I mean, you rarely find the remains of other animals um, uh, you know, that haven't been killed naturally. So, so yeah, there's, there's a lot to it. I mean, it's really interesting, but, for whatever reason, as I mentioned earlier, the Pacific Northwest just seems to be just a, a very conducive kind of environment. Is that their native range? I mean, I don't know, possibly. It seems to be one of the most heavily kind of uh, areas that has sort of Sasquatch reports in history. A lot of the First Nations people in there have a lot of very interesting folklore and costumes and totem poles that depict hairy people of the woods. And you know, the term Sasquatch was well known well before the term Bigfoot was invented in Northern California. Sasquatch being from British Columbia, the, the coastal kind of Salish tribes in that area. So, uh, yeah, definitely intriguing. To wrap this up a little bit, just two final questions. If people were to have a possible run-in with Bigfoot and or any other cryptid, what's the best possible way that they could go about reporting that to somebody? And then lastly, just give us your final overview on the whole entire Bigfoot cryptid phenomenon, if you could. Sure. Yeah. Good questions. Uh, someone were to have an encounter, I would say initially, as if they're, you know, because uh, as I was mentioning earlier, a lot of these reports, typically people don't know what to expect. I mean, they don't know what's going on. Their, their brain is trying to understand what is going on in the moment. And these encounters happen so quick, something that's not supposed to exist. 
Uh, but if you're if you're going into it with the awareness, which I think is great, and that we're all about spreading awareness for if you see a mountain lion or see something else, right? Maybe in the moment, once you've kind of gathered yourself, I mean, if, if you're not getting the heck out of there, because a lot of people are usually moment they see something like a Sasquatch, they're probably going the opposite direction. But let's say you gather yourself and you either stay on scene or you come back the next day. Um, just do some preliminary investigation, you know, look around and say, all right, is there any evidence where this thing went? Could I maybe find any footprint evidence or any look in the branches and the trees, look at areas where you might get snagged in, see if there possibly is any hair or anything like that. Just being able to gather that, but going about reporting it, that's the tricky part. I mean, if you know somebody who's a researcher, obviously that's probably a good start, but there are groups. I mean, one place I would definitely recommend submitting a sighting to is the Bigfoot Mapping Project, yeah. uh, which is my, my buddy Scott runs that. Uh, does a fantastic job. Um, he does GIS work, but you know he'll take the report and he'll put it on the map. And as I was talking about earlier with eyewitness stories being useful in the data pool, if we have a credible data pool that's been vetted, and we know it's not bogus sightings or people just seeing the fleeting glimpse of a bear. Again, not knocking them, you know, just seeing a fleeting glimpse of something going in the woods. But that's not that's just not in the same criteria as somebody that saw a Sasquatch cross the path 10 feet in front of them. You know, so, again, not, I'm not trying to discourage anyone from even if they've had a fleeting glimpse sighting to report it. Absolutely do. But, you know, be open to the possibility that maybe you saw something else, too. It's that not necessarily just the Sasquatch. Um, so, you know, you, you get that data pool. Essentially, that helps us being able to look at, all right. You know, there, this area has a history of sightings. Clearly, year after year, there are a certain amount of reports, whatever. This is a great area we could focus on or pass it on to people, even if people in academia, that there are some people that are kind of closeted Bigfoot enthusiasts in the academic world that are not. There's a few people that are out, like Dr. Jeff Meldrum and others that are academics that are, you know, open about their Bigfoot kind of uh, interest, but that usually doesn't go well for a lot of these folks. So there are people behind the scenes that, are into the topic. So what we like to do is, uh, you know, there's certain groups that like project zoo book, they coordinate with people behind the scenes and you get alleged evidence out there. I mean, you can report it to a person like that, you know, to people like that, that can then say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to have my team of folks look at it. And these people are all, all bringing their academic credentials to, to, uh, to their opinion. You know, they'll give, they'll give a thought on it and they can kind of help you look and possibly analyze it a little bit and just get a second opinion. And I think that's, for me, it's very critical. Um, because a lot of times we have an encounter or we have something possible evidence like that we come across, we're emotionally attached to that story, to what happened there, whether we like it or not. A lot of times what happens is people will then ask somebody else for an opinion. The person says, oh, well, yeah, that, that looks like typical bear kind of behavior. And the person will be like, well, no, it's not. I, I just don't like my, you know, because they're, again, they're emotionally invested in that evidence. <laughs> They're, they're not looking at it objectively. I want to get somebody objective to look at it and give me you know, an opinion. Is this interesting or not? You know, and don't get offended by what they say. If, if you're asking for, an, you know, kind of an unbiased opinion and then you get upset by it, then that's not really the proper way to go about it. But the ego got in the way. Yeah. And that's just, that just happens. We're humans. Like I get it. You know, everyone wants to have that great encounter, but if you can break that down and say, all right, well, you know, actually it was this that I encountered. I think it's a good learning experience. It helps you just identify that well, there's more than just what I'm looking for out there. Don't have Bigfoot on the brain. Not everything is going to be Bigfoot related out in the woods. So it's important to uh, to be critical about it because the more credible evidence we can get, the more we can get people in that sort of, whether it's academia or, or people that are even into the wilderness, trackers and hunters, people who maybe aren't from an academic background, but they, they dang sure know the woods. 
to look at this stuff and be compelled by what they're seeing, the more awareness there is and closer we get to possibly being able to say, well, we know what's going on here or whatever. If that ever will happen, I don't know. Um, you know, then you get into the conspiracy stuff and saying, oh, the suppression or whatever. But, um, you know, if you have something that's irrefutable, I think that's great. So, yeah, I'd say people definitely, um, there's some online databases that will take sightings and that sort of thing. And, um, but Bigfoot specifically, I'd say the Bigfoot Mapping Project, and a lot of times that data can then be passed off to somebody else. Or a lot of times, I mean, there are groups like the BFRO, and I know there's been a lot of controversy over them in the year over the years. But they have some great researchers that oftentimes will look into your local sightings. If you've had something happen in the local area, you want someone to come out and check it out. Um, there are there are different groups that do that, but you'd have to do a little bit of research. It's not as I guess clean cut of a response, I suppose, as um, some people might prefer, but uh, definitely, even if you're just posting on Facebook, a lot of times we'll hear stuff, people post something weird they found on Facebook and it'll go viral. And then other researchers can see it and they kind of chime in on it and they say, okay, that's interesting. So there's, there's, there's a number of ways of going about it, I suppose, if that, uh, if that answers that question. And then for the second question about the overall of the Bigfoot topic, I think it's just, it's so fascinating, you know, just the amount, and I, I talked about it earlier too. The amount of people that have had encounters that have similar characteristics, similar things going on in seemingly removed places from one another, that they don't know each other. They haven't, you know, there's completely different environments, yet there are very similar things going on. It's interesting. I've had some things happen that, I, you know, again, I can't say are definitively Bigfoot because I haven't seen one, but we've had things thrown at us randomly in the woods Wood knocks, that's a big one you hear, very unusual kind of sounds, vocalizations, that sort of thing. Stuff like that happens over the years, and it's just kind of, it, it, that's the, most of the time when you're out in the woods, nothing happens. 99% of the time, nothing Bigfoot related will happen, you know, or, or interesting. But those times when something weird does happen, that's what kind of keeps you going. That's what kind of keeps me saying, okay, there's something going on here. That, plus all the eyewitnesses and some of the stories and the, the people that, again, are just not, not looking for it. It just happens to them. And oftentimes they sit on that sighting and don't tell anyone for years. I just don't know why people would want to put themselves through that sort of voluntarily or what gain they have if they literally will lose credibility in their, with the ability to make money by sharing a story like this. What purpose would they have for making something like that up? So I think the stories are pretty prevalent. You know, they're getting, Bigfoot's getting more and more sort of mainstream in a way. Uh, a lot more people are, are accepting of it than previously in the past, which I think is good. I think there's going to be good and bad to that. There's going to be a lot more, you know, hoaxes and a lot more fakery because that does happen too. You know, people want to trick stuff and trick people and some people just have fun with it and then it gets taken too seriously. But there are, there's lots of clickbait and lots of, um, you know, TV stuff that just exploits the topic. They're not into it for the truth. They're they're into it to make money and to, you know, get ratings, that sort of thing. And they're, you know, they're not going to tell you the truth about what's going on. They're going to deceive you. And I think it's unfortunate when people, that's where they get their information about this topic from, instead of the, the many researchers around there, places like the North American Bigfoot Center, you know, whether it's a physical museum or, um, you know, other sort of sources. And there's a lot of good, good podcasts and good uh, programs out there on this topic, people that are truly invested in groups like the Olympic project and the North American wood ape conservancy, just to name a few. So there's a, there's a lot, it's, it's a, it can, it can be a pretty big topic at a lot of times, but it's one of my favorites to look into because, you know, 
when we're looking into a specific cryptid like the Lake Champlain monster or something that's kind of geographically limited to one location, right? It's, you don't have the Lake Champlain monster in every lake. Mm-hmm. It's just that one lake. Whereas Sasquatch, usually most of the time, if you go to somewhere with, with mountains or swamps or a lot of tree cover, there's probably a report or two at some point in history. So you can literally go anywhere and there's tons of local Sasquatch story, you know, the wood devils of New Hampshire, the Falk monster of Arkansas, the Mogollon monster of Mogollon Rim, Arizona, um, the skunk ape of Florida. You have all these different regional kind of types. And a lot of these stories go back to before there was a collective Bigfoot or Sasquatch in the sort of, uh, you know, not in, the, in common knowledge. It was all local. It was people seeing a creature in their local area and calling it a wood booger or calling it something super weird that would seem weird to us now. But to them at the time, they didn't have another way to reference it. So it became the Mogion monster or something monster like the big muddy monster, whatever the case may be. There's a ton of those local stories and I find them pretty interesting. The Winstead wild man, Connecticut, there's another one. There's a lot of wild men up in Winstead. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to make sure to include all your links in our show notes. We'll also throw in the Bigfoot Mapping Project. We'll throw in the Olympic Project, as you said. We'll throw in all those links so that people can check out those different things. Tell everyone, tell our listeners where they can find you, your work, your YouTube series is obviously on YouTube. Tell us all your links promote yourself sure so yeah absolutely the the basically the the two places i tell people to go are one my website which is petakov media so that's p-e-t-a-k-o-v media.com and that has links to everything so you can get anywhere all the social media all the youtube stuff and then the other place would be small town monsters um, i think you know because we do a lot of stuff and not just me being self-promoting obviously but i think we do a lot do a good job trying to cover a lot of these different topics. And I do that series called Bigfoot Beyond the Trail, which is on the Small Town Monsters YouTube channel. And But there's links to that both on my website and the Small Town Monsters website. So if you want to go see that, check it out. Or you could do Small Town Monsters on YouTube, I guess, too, um, if you don't want to go to either of those sites. But uh, yeah, so Bigfoot Beyond the Trail. We've got, a, we've got like 18, I think, documentaries so far out since last year. We've got a lot more coming, especially some of that Alaska stuff I was talking about. So um, we're always monthly we're posting videos and a lot of times it's just us out in the field and doing these kinds of investigations or interviewing eyewitnesses so there's a lot to it and uh, definitely uh, if people are, are curious you know feel free to reach out I'm an open book essentially if, um, if people have any questions or anything like that uh, hit me up on one of my socials or email or whatever and it's all on the Petacom Media website one stop shop <laughs> exactly just make it easy to disseminate from there so we had to try to have fun with it, and we try to, uh, like I said, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we do try to take the topic seriously in a way that I think uh, the modern kind of TV landscape isn't. If we can have people have fun along the way and inspire people to get out in the woods too, I think that's a great byproduct. It is. It is. Well, Alex, we want to thank you again for coming on the show and giving us your time. And Hushlings, until next time on the Declassified Discussions, I'm Declassified Dave. I'm Mr. Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. <laughs> <laughs>